0: All right, I am going to uh, hustle through f- and finish f- four and perhaps jump into some of five today um, simply because I am of the pers- personal opinion that Revelation is like a layered onion. You find out something about one thing and then that leads to something else and then you go to that and you go, that goes to something else. And you can spend a great deal of time on any given subject in Revelation. Um, So, and the other thing is, is that I feel like because of current dispensational thought, we've pretty well um, reduced Revelation to nothing more than a storybook. And we missed the whole thing. I'm, I'm still of the impression that you could teach the entire gospel and the entire Bible straight from Revelation. You can just start in Revelation 1 and go through and teach the entire Bible. Um, And so uh, it's a very, very weighty, very complex, very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Multifaceted book. I almost feel like I'm doing it in an injustice by raging through this, but I'm going to rage through it anyway. All right. Um, we've been talking about chapter four, the throne room. Uh, John hears a voice. He is called up. Uh, he sees it. He hears a voice. Sees an open door. We've identified the open door as Christ. No man comes to the Father save through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, and since we're going to be seeing that this is a vision of creation, redemption, recreation, which in the economy of God is the intention of what he's doing on the, on the earth and the purpose why he created anything outside of himself, um, it's very important that we understand what's, what this picture is. And what we've talked about so far is the throne. And I'm going to draw this and try my best to give a pictorial illustration of what John saw because the, what John saw is an overarching picture. It's intended to be understood as a whole, although individual components do have a significant uh, um, application or part of that overwhelming picture. What we've covered up so far is there is a throne uh, in that John sees a throne. And that seems to be the focus of the vision. The word throne is used a great deal throughout Revelation. I don't remember the exact count. But the point here is that that God is sovereign. He is sovereign over his creation. Um, and this is an important concept when we're talking about what Revelation is all about. I cannot draw a chair today. Um, thank you. Here, like this. There you go. Okay. So, a, a chair. Okay, there. There, throne. All right. Okay. Okay. Um, it's a little hobbit chair here. Hang on there we go okay let's make a padding here just because it's nice and cozy there we go Okay, throne. all right what is wrong with it now oh there i, I decapitated it all right and so what what john sees is john is entered ushered into the throne room of god and he sees as it were a throne and he sees what he calls one who sits on the throne. Now, notice very, it's very important to notice that he does not bother to describe him. He doesn't even try. The other part that's really important is that John never names him. John never identifies him as Elohim, as Yahweh, as anything. And the reason is is because in Jewish, uh, in Jewish tradition, it was forbidden to name God, especially as it related to his throne. So John, holding to Jewish tradition, did not name the one who sat on the throne, okay? So what we also see is that John describes the throne and the radiance of the throne. He doesn't describe gems. And I think I left you guys open to the idea that John was describing gems or gemstones. He sees, as it were, jade and what we call ruby or sardis. Um, so you have this green and this red thing kind of hue and he never describes the person it's just the radiance that he describes okay so you have this radiance that surrounds the throne all right and he says over the throne is what we've talked about it what's over the throne rainbow okay so I'm going to draw it it's a circular rainbow it's not like well I guess we could draw it like this let's do it like this okay let's just draw it like that and it's um, it's green, it's emerald in color. Okay, it, it's not like the seven-hued rainbow that we always see outside. So we talked about that as being significant for covenant. And uh, and going back to the covenant made with Noah, and that God would never again destroy creation. But it's significant because out of what God did comes what. God started over what did he do what's the word that we like to use well, he recreated that's an important statement so the rainbow well i'm going to just label it rainbow yep yeah a lot of well there's a lot of debate on what the color means some say it represents uh the you know the uh nature and the fullness of the vegetation and things like that um the, the color emerald is actually the only color in Revelation that is directly associated with the glory of God. Okay, so um, there's a lot of people who speak to that end. So, so what you have so far is you've got a being that's on the throne that John does not describe. He is radiant. He is not, you can't make out a an image. That's also important. All right. And um, so the colors that he sees are green and red. Then over the throne is a rainbow that is the color of emerald, and that represents covenant God. And we'll talk about all this in more detail as we go along because all of this has to do with the big picture. Now, uh, let me see. Let me scroll down here. There was something else that was going on uh, around the throne. Yeah. Let me see. I'm missing something, huh? There, here. Um, I got to figure out where that is. I don't. I know the, the the passages. I don't remember the order that they come in. Ah, verse five. Okay. Well, we won't worry about that. Surrounding the throne. Suggested that so surrounding the throne. Verse four. Uh, were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold in their head. Now on their head. Now this is important. Because where else do we see white and crowns of gold? Revelation 1. And who is it spoken of that is wearing those? That's right. So around the throne. Now this is important. We're looking at concentric circles here. Okay? This is very important. Now in some of the other uh, visions of God, the very first one was one of David's uh, men. I I never can't pronounce his name. It starts with an A. He saw... The Lord sitting on a throne, and everything straight in lines beside him. Okay. Then we talked about Ezekiel, the differences between Ezekiel's revelation and Isaiah's revelation, um, and then the difference here. Now, this is one of the things that is not mentioned in any of the other visions that uh, the Lord grants to the other the Old Testament prophets. Around the throne are twenty four. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. These guys are not quite as high up because they have to sit too close. 21, 22, 23, 24. 24 elders, okay? And they had their own thrones. Now, what are these? Anybody know what the elders represent? Yeah. They are. So they constitute the entire church. Okay, so this is the redeemed church in its fullness that surround the throne, okay? let Let me just run through this real quick. Surrounding the throne, 24 elders. The proximity of the elders' thrones to the throne of God depicts the truth about all authority comes from God's authority. The same is true of the crowns they wear, okay? They have been, uh, there have been many possible uh, possibilities offered to the identities of these elders. Uh, one is that they may have been the heavenly representative of David's 24 orders of priesthood, First Chronicles. The other is that they depict the 24 Levitical gatekeepers, also in First Chronicles. Or that they are the 24 Levitical worship leaders that David assigned. Uh, many hold that, uh, that they have a close representation with the seven stars in the hand of, in the hand of Christ at, in, in the first vision, right? And remember, there's been a, there was a controversy over what those were. Many said that they were angels. I have a problem with that, that th- these are representation, angelic representation of angels. Why do I have a problem with that? Because the Lord um, exhorts the angels. They're doing something wrong. Okay, uh, heavenly angels carry out the will of God perfectly. So, for them to be doing something wrong and ha- receive a rebuke from God is inconsistent with Scripture. So, I've never under, uh, what I understand the stars to be in Jesus hands as He walked among the lampstands sta- lamp is the fullness, the representation of the fullness of the Church in eternity, and this is what we have here. Okay. Were they real men sitting on thrones? They might have been. They might be angel. They're not angelic beings. I will tell you why in a minute. But they are some kind of heavenly being as a representation of the church as it surrounds the throne of God. Okay. G.K. Beale even says these are angelic representations of the church. Equating uh, these with angels is problematic for several reasons, as I've said. However, because of Revelation 21, 12 through 14, we have the 12 patriarchs on the New Jerusalem's coming down, right? What do we see? The New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, it has written 12 gates. And above the 12 gates are written what? The names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it also has 12 foundations. And what are the names on the 12, tri- uh, 12 foundations? The apostles. It's the only place in Revelation where the number 24 coincides with this. And, and, and quite honestly, we, we must allow Scripture to interpret itself. And we just can't yank things out of the blue and say, well, that's 24, so I think if you, you multiply this by this and this. And a lot of people do that. It becomes really kind of odd. Okay, so 24, this is why we equate it with the church. The fact that they sit on thrones themselves and reign with Christ, here's the reason why we do this. They sit on thrones themselves and reign with Christ as promised in 321. Okay, so in Revelation 321, it is said of the church that you will sit with me on my throne. They sit on thrones. They wear golden crowns, as promised the ch- to the church in Revelation two, chapter ten, uh, in Revelation chapter two, verse ten, and they are clothed in white, as promised also to the church in Revelation three, four. Okay, so we have three things about that are described about these twenty-four elders that are previously promised to those who overcome in the first three chapters, so the fir- in chapter two and three. Okay. Um notice that the that the depiction of the church is given a prominent place a very uh, uh, a very close proximity to the throne of God and this is interesting while the world oops I lost my place while the world looks on Christians with contempt um especially uh, which is especially true of first century church and is becoming that way now they are actually in God's economy one of the most significant and blessed. All right. It is also interesting to note that on all the Old Testament accounts of a throne room vision, this is the only one that includes the 24 elders. Uh, This, in my estimation, gives additional support to the symbol representing the ideal church or the church as it is seen from a heavenly perspective. Okay. Um. As we've said, there are those who claim that these are angels, that these are angelic beings. There are problems with that. And here's my problems with why these. I do not agree that these are angelic beings. First, it is the saints, not angels, who are given the privilege of sitting with Jesus on his throne. Okay? No angel is given that promise. No angel is given authority to judge the nations. All right. In, in Revelation 24, the church is given that um, although angels appear in white garments, it is the saints of God who are clothed in white to signify the purity that comes from uh, being cleansed from sin. And these elders wear golden crowns, which signify authority to rule and it is to the saints, not to angels who are granted authority to rule with Christ. OK. Any questions on that? Uh, James Ramsey writes this they are your representative believe they are your representative those thrones and crowns and priestly robes are yours that position around and near to the throne of a covenant God is yours such is the place you occupy in the spiritual kingdom of God its purity honor power and nearness to God are indeed as yet yours actually but only in part but yeah
1: Uh, real quick so the 12 tribes of Israel's significance is, because, is that, again, we see that that deals with the dispensational oh, yeah. issue yeah. Yeah. of separating. And you can see redemption and, and the elect from the old mm-hmm. are also included, obviously, in the church.
0: Yeah. And so that's a good point because uh, uh, dispensationalists also hold that the church did not come into being until the day of Pentecost. Okay? So they will say that there was Israel— and they will even agree that Israel was a foreshadow or a type of the church. But they do not re- equate a direct link. They would not hold that Abraham was part of the church. They would say he was part of the nation of Israel or of the elect nation. So they make a distinction between church and ethnic Israel. What this picture shows is that God does not make such a distinction. That the revelation plan that we're going to see in the next chapter extends both backward and forward and includes all believers all the way back to Adam okay so this is uh, a very significant uh, symbol here that we're seeing that John is seeing and again it is the only symbol in uh, it's the only symbol of the or the only vision in all of the visions of the throne room where this particular symbol is is identified there is no church in any of the Old Testament pictures And this is because of what we're going to see in the next chapter when Jesus, who is on this throne in chapter 4 as part of the Godhead, which is, this is a picture of the triune God, and I'll show you in a second why that is, while Jesus becomes distinct as the incarnate, describable Son, who can now say, if you've seen me, you've seen what cannot be described. That's cool, in my opinion. Verse 5, from the throne came thunders, rumblings, peals of thunder. And how come this isn't working? Oh, there we go. Um, And before the the, uh, throne were seven lamps. uh, There were seven lamps blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. All right, so from the throne, you have lightning. (laughs) We'll just do this. Thunder. How do you do that? How are you making noise? I don't care. Boom. Oh, yeah, let's do that. Let's go boom. (laughs) All right. All right, now what is this a a picture of? Where else do we see something like this? And this is very significant. I'm going to make an equation here that we need to keep in mind as we go through Revelation. What event does this point back to? Yeah, yeah. but even further back. No, a little bit forward. <laughs> what happened when God descended on Sinai? There, were, there was black smoke, thunder, lightning, and the people were afraid to approach it. All right, and Moses actually walked into, uh, walked into it. All right. So what this represents, and let me just read it here, because uh, this is what Moses beheld from the mountain when God descended upon it in Exodus 19. The phrase is also found in Revelation 8:5, 11:19, and 16:18. All of which have to do with God's judgment, and this is a recurring theme throughout Revelation. God's vindication, His setting a right of all things that are wrong. Okay, this is what Revelation has to do with. Some commentators consider this uh, of significance since many of the plagues of Revelation are clearly foreshadows of those uh, inflicted on Egypt. Now, one of the things that I want to say to you is, why is this not working? My mouse is locked up, hang on. Oh, there it goes. I think. having slight technical difficulty here. Yeah. Why is this not working all of a sudden? No, I'm just reboot it real quick. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I don't. <laughs> what? I don't understand what this thing is doing. It is hard locked. Yeah, I can't get it to do anything. Oh, here it goes. It might be able to. There we go. Sorry about that, guys. Okay, well, I can tell you this because I don't need my notes to tell you this. Um. The reason that this is significant, the reason why we see peals of thunder and the like from the mountain uh, is because there is a direct correlation between what God is about to do and what he's doing with new creation and the exodus. The exodus is a foreshadow of what's happening now. Uh, there's there's um, there's a whole section in Isaiah called um, uh, Isaiah's Apocalypse, which has to do with um, the exodus of the new creation, the exodus of that we are now going through. And there's so many parallels. There's a lot of parallels and distinctions between the trumpets and the bowls of wrath, and they can t- be tied directly back to the, the, the uh, plagues of Egypt. There's the idea of passing through the water, which we're about to talk about here in the Red Sea. There's the idea of... Um, uh, being led into, there's the promised land. All of this has to do and, and for, uh, All of this has to do with Exodus as a foreshadow of what God is doing. Revelation depicts the new Exodus of God. Okay, so it's very important. So this picture here of thunder, peals of thunder, loud rumblings, lightning is all goes back to Exodus when the whole mountain shook. And it's also significant, and I won't get into it, but the whole idea of mountain is so significant in eschatology. Um, in front of the throne are seven lamps. Okay? So we have in front of the throne, I'm going to do this real quick. Okay? So what we have is we have radiance. Radiance. And I'll just do it really close here. This is radiance. And then we have lightning and thunder. Boom. And then before the throne are two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven lamps. And they are the seven spirits of God. Now, again, we go back to the, how important the number seven is. What is that a significant of? Huh? fullness, fullness. So this is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. This goes back again to Zechariah. Um, let me see, seven lamps, these are the seven spirits of God. This is the same vision that Zechariah had in chapter 4, where they are associated with the Spirit of God. The significance of the seven temple lamps in relation to the work of the Spirit will be discussed later as we get into chapter 5, verse 6, where Jesus is said to have the seven eyes, which are the Spirit of God, because they no longer appear before the throne room. They are now on the person of Jesus Christ, which is extremely significant in in what that depicts. Okay? So, here what we have then is we have John seeing a throne with an indescribable being on it with the, the Spirit of God before it. We see a picture of the triune God here. Jesus and the son and the father, bef- the son before his incarnation, are seated on the throne and are indescribable. They are distinct, but yet one. And before, which proceeds from both the father and son, are, is the spirit or the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? So, we have right here in the center of this, the Trinity. And this is pre-incarnation. Okay? Okay? Verse 6, also in front of the throne will what looked like a sea of glass, clearest crystal. Alright. So before the throne, it may be like right here. Let's do it right here. Sea of glass. All right. Clear as crystal. All right, clear as crystal. What does this represent? This is really significant. What is the sea of glass? Now, Isaiah saw, a, as it were, a canopy of glass, okay? And Moses and the elders, when they were called up to Sinai, saw what appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky before God, okay? What is... The sea of glass. Can anybody tell me? Now, remember, what we're doing is we're, we're drawing a picture of God, the God of creation. The God of creation. This is what this picture is all about. What is the sea of glass? Any ideas? Anybody know? You already know because I told you. Uh, <laughs> cheater. I'll, uh, yeah, go ahead. What's the sea of glass? He's got a microphone? Oh. Uh, <laughs> The sun? There we go. (laughs) As far as I know, the sea of glass is... It's like God conquering Satan, conquering chaos. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing but peace. That's right. Okay. If we're seeing a picture of creation, and later on we see in verse 5 that all creation, whether it be in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, worships God every living being worships God you have to consider that not only do the saints and those that are redeemed come to worship God but so do also those that have been opposed to God right is there any criteria or stipulation on Paul's statement that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord is there any stipulation on that no this sea of glass represents several things, and we're going to talk about that because it's going to be significant today uh, In later when, G- when we talk about, I'll, I won't say it right yet. Um, this sea of glass is seen in several other places. It's seen in, uh, in the Mount Sinai. It's seen also in Ezekiel as a canopy, and it is the transparent pavement that the martyrs stand on. That's in Key. It is the transparent pavement that the martyrs stand upon to celebrate God's victory in fifteen, in chapter 15, verse 2. Now, many have said that this is the Bronze Sea of the Solomon Temple. Remember, there was the big Bronze Sea that was the temple. Nobody's really ever given a good explanation that I can find of what that was. Um or at least none that I've ever read. Um, ah, there we go. Yeah. red. Okay, so what this represents, if we're talking about the Exodus motif, the Exodus depiction, and this is becoming a current Exodus, this is a representation, really, uh, uh, this goes back and, and, and it, it symbolizes or it depicts the Red Sea, uh, which was the symbol of an obstacle, to the freedom that the Israelites received as they were led out of Egypt. Remember what happened. Remember the story. They're led out of Egypt. They're led by a cloud to what? The Red Sea. And they can't. Can they move forward? No. It's chaos. It's what, what happens? Well, it's just the Red Sea. What happens? God sends a wind and he churns it up. And they wake up in the morning and there's a path through it and they pass through on dry land, right? And then the waves come back and destroy the enemy, okay? Um, yes?
1: I'm sorry if you're going to talk about all this, but yeah. in Genesis 1, then, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, the chaos of creation initially. So again, this is a picture of recreation.
0: Yeah. New creation. And that is uh, also important, and we're going to, we'll talk about that. Again, my thing locked up. Slide down to shut your PC down. I don't know what that means. There we go. Okay, it's going to reboot. Hang on. Finally. Sorry, guys. All right, let's just talk about this. Throughout Scripture, where does, what does the sea represent? Let's just take, for example, Job. Let's take, for example, Isaiah. Who who does? Let's just take Job for example. What lives in the sea? Leviathan. Leviathan. What is the Leviathan? The adversary. the adversary. He is the serpent. Where does the beast come from? Out of the sea. What? Is what what are the, the, the people depicted as, of in Revelation 19? What are the people depicted as in Revelation 19 when when Babylon is destroyed, and it is said that the blank people stand on the shore and lament the destruction of Babylon? What what are those people depicted as? Anybody know? Sea merchants. Sea merchants. Now, if you go back in Ezekiel chapter 27 and 28, you will see that the same type of thing is also depicted because Revela- uh, Ezekiel, when it's talking about Tyre, which is a type of Antichrist system, made its wealth as sea merchants. Yeah. Sorry. Not right. sorry.
1: And also, I used to get so bummed because Revelation says, then there shall be no
0: more sea. Yeah. It's the first thing said of the new creation, but what is that sea speaking of? That that's what this sea is speaking of. That's what that's why there is no more sea in the new the new creation because there is no more home of Leviathan.
1: But not a literal.
0: Well, no, there's water because we we know that there's, from the throne room comes a river that waters the garden,
1: and there's going to be surfing.
0: Well, <laughs> I still I still think the li- on you on know, the new earth. I, I still think that uh, da- uh, da- Gilmore will be saved, and we'll get to listen to him play guitar. So I'm I'm hoping for that. So yeah. <laughs> no. Because here's why it's not a barrier. Because later in chapter 15 we see what this is another picture. What do we see in chapter 15? We see the martyrs. What are they standing on? The sea. So what is this a picture of? This is a picture of God's sovereign rule over Leviathan and the sea that opposes him. Not even the sea and Leviathan can thwart the sovereignty of God because they are under his control. So the Noah flood represents the death waters or the sea, the covering of yep. all living things. That's true. And through it, not... was. What, what does the scripture say? You were saved through water, not by water. Yeah. And what does baptism represent? The passing through the water. So that's what Peter says. So this is a picture of God's sovereign rule over the very thing that we're going to see later that rises up out of the sea. This is the very thing that shows that God is sovereign over the serpent in the garden. And that later on in chapter 15, when the saints stand on the sea of glass, that's a very, very significant picture. They stand on the very thing. That has caused him. What does Ezekiel say when he is thrown down? The the nations of the world walk by Lucifer after he's been thrown down. And they'll say, is this the man that deceived the nations? Is this him? As they stand on. Because they are conquerors. That's what that's a picture of. The sea... And I'll tell you what's really cool. There's several pictures in the New Testament that demonstrate this. Who's got a microphone? Yeah, Susan. So you would say that there's definitely a distinction between water as it's represented in the Bible and the sea as it's represented in Revelation. Yeah. So the sea is as if you understand Revelation as being a depiction of things, a picture or a symbol. The idea that there is no more sea goes all the way back to the home of Leviathan from which chaos, God creates order. Remember one of the very first things he did was he created land which did what? Separated the water and created a boundary for it. So God has always hemmed in the sea. Why? Because he is sovereign over it. And when we are faced with a world system that is just anti-Christ, anti-God, anti-this, anti-everything, anti-moral, anti-everything that you ever wanted to know, you have to keep in mind that this sea in before God, in John's vision, is as calm as glass because he has triumphed over it. Is it? I didn't know that.
1: And he says this. He said they are wild waves of the sea, casting oh, yeah. up their own shame like foam.
0: So again, the continuation of the image. The continuation of the image. Okay. So there are so many uh, depictions of what this is, and some of them are really funky. Um, some say that it's it's a it's the barrier between the the. Creation and the holiness of God. I think that that finds a problem in Revo- in Hebrews. Let us draw near, full of faith and confidence. And I don't find anywhere in Scripture where the barrier between God and man is represented as water. It's always represented as a what? Curtain. It's always represented as a curtain. And what is said when Jesus died when, at the crucifixion? The curtain was torn from the top to the bottom, granting access to these 24 elders that sat around the throne. There is no sea that separates, for the church later stands on the sea. That's a phenomenal picture. Now let me give you some, uh, some additional information why I hold to this. We see several places in the, in the, in the uh, Gospels where Jesus was in a boat and he's asleep in the boat and the waves kick up. Chaos kicks up. And Luke records, of Matthew's account in chapter 8, Luke records that the boat was being swamped and they were fearful of their lives. Now listen, these are sailors. These are guys who make their living on choppy water. And they're scared. So it's not just a little whistle of wind. This is a significant thing. How many of you have ever felt like your boat's sinking? You have, haven't you? The waves are coming over, right? What, is, what do they do? They run down. Master, don't you care that we perish? And what does he do? He gets up and he just says, hey, peace, be still. And the water became calm. As glass. Where were they going? This is another significant point. Where were they going? To To throw a demon out. So Leviathan was protecting his own. And then later he walks on the sea. Now what is that a picture of? Come on. Go back to Genesis 3. And he bruises his heel as Jesus walks on the waves. That's what this picture is all about. And you have gospel pictures that demonstrate that he calms the sea and it's as pure as glass. Okay? Any questions on that? Pretty cool, isn't it? Now, in the four corners of the throne, you got some more interesting things going on. What do you got? You have four living beings. In I, I'm going to get this backwards or I'm going to get it wrong. and I, It doesn't really matter. It's just in, in Isaiah or Ezekiel, they each call them something different. In one of them, it's they are called seraphim. And in the other one, they are called cherubim. In one, they have four wings. In another, they have six. In one, Ezekiel's vision, they bear up the throne. In Isaiah, they fly over the throne and i've said that the reason that these these show distinctions is because god this is we have to understand again that god doesn't sit on a throne like a wood chair or a lapis lazuli chair as ezekiel sees it's a depiction of his sovereignty he can't be described he's ineffable so god allows john to see something in his own that his mind will understand in order to convey to him what is really true. Okay? In Ezekiel's vision we see four beings that carry the throne and the the and the whole scenario is mounted on wheels. Right? Wheels within wheels. Now the beings are not said to have eyes, but what has eyes in Ezekiel's dream? The wheels. And wherever the being on the throne chose to go it just went that way and it didn't turn because the wheel within a wheel just moved it right and in ezekiel's dream the four beings had four faces here they each only have one the the difference between this image and the one in ezekiel is that god showed ezekiel the wheels which don't exist in this vision Because God is a covenant God and he followed his people into captivity. He went with his people into captivity. That's what Ezekiel is being shown. Here we're seeing something completely different. We're seeing that God is wanting to show John. I'm about to show you some pretty terrifying things, but let me show you who I am first. I oversee all that you're about to experience. I call him the, the sea. Around the throne are four beings, and these beings each have a, a different face. There's an eagle, there's an ox, there's a man, and there is a lion. And what do those represent? And they have, they have eyes all over. And a lot of people say, well, that, that depicts God's uh, um, omniscience, that he sees all things. Well, they're not on God, They're on beings, so it it probably goes back to Zechariah where he sends out these beings and they comb the earth. So it really does depict in a way God's omniscience, but it's through heavenly beings that is the picture that's being depicted. I don't want to get caught up in all that, but what you have is four beings and you see four different types. You see a man, an ox, an eagle, and a Man, ox, eagle, lion. Why is this significant? Anybody? Remember what we're talking about. God is sovereign over creation. It represents all of crea- all created creatures. Okay, so are you starting to see a picture here? Actually I'm not. Uh, the, the reason I'm not is because there are some fantastic concepts about what all this means. And uh, again, there's, a, there's this propensity by a lot of scholars to really get in and granularize the picture to the point that you lose the intention. The intention here is that you do... These represent the apex of the different orders that they represent. Man is the apex of creation. The ox is the apex of the beasts that roam on the earth. the eagle is the apex of those that the, the, the birds that fill the sky and uh, the lion is the master of king of the, king of the jungle. okay so that's that's the significance. so they represent all all of created uh, the created creatures all right Let me scroll down here. Um, okay let's get right down here. We already did the Sea of Glass. Um, each are covered with eyes. All right. Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. Let's stop right here before we get into the doxological uh, or the hymns uh, of because the hymns that conclude both chapter 4 and 5 actually tie together. What is said about God as creator is later in a different way said about Christ, who is also God. So there's an equation made of deity that we have to, we have to see. And the idea is God of creation. Jesus shows up here in a minute uh, as being right about here. Sorry. In the midst of the throne. Right? And then, so we see redemption, so we see creation here. Jesus shows up as the Lamb. Lamb, what does the lamb equal? Redemption. And the intention of redemption is what? New creation. So the lamb comes and creates the fullness of what the original creation was. So this is the picture that we're seeing in between Revelation 4 and 5. Now, And that's where the rainbow comes in. Okay, so this is a picture of God and His sovereignty over creation. And He's doing this so the church can understand that I got all of this under control. Yes, you will go through hardship. Yes, there will be troubles. Yes, there will be trials and tribulation. But I am worshipped because I calm the sea. And I oversee all of this. That's why this is done in a, in a circle. Because God presides in the middle. And He is over all. He's non-created. We're talking about, so what we see here is heaven. This is heaven, right? Now what is heaven? Where God is. But this particular thing, since we're talking about creation, is even itself part of the picture. What does Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Created the spiritual realm and the visible realm. He created both. What we're seeing here is the created spiritual sphere. We're not seeing some forever eternal abode where God, because before God created, there was no heaven. There was just God. God is not spatial, He doesn't require space to abide in. That's funky. Okay? So there. In the beginning, God created what John is now seeing. This is not some weird place that is untouched by time. This space is in time. And why this is important is because even heaven itself is under the sovereign control of God. So what you see is you see heaven, Genesis 1, under God's sovereign control. You see all of creation Under God's sovereign control. You see the church. Under God's sovereign control. You see. Chaos. Chaos, Lucifer and Leviathan. Under God's sovereign control. And what do you see here? The new creation. Under God's sovereign control. That's a pretty comprehensive picture. Okay? So this is what John is seeing. It's not, John's not getting a gratuitous tour of God's living room. God's not just satisfying the curious. He's saying to the church, from time immemorial to time immemorial, I am sovereign. And because of this, The host of heaven and all of this cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. What do we call that? We call holy, holy, holy is the trisagion, and it's very Trinitarian in its statement. All right? The Revelation 4 reveals the biblical model of worship. It is the most basic principle. Worship is praise in response to God's revelation of himself. There's a there's an old saying that a guy once I heard uh, said that that there's this there's this thing that goes on in heaven where the 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 four four living creatures will cry holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty and the the twenty four elders will fall down on their face and apparently this continues. The, it's not a true representation of the word. The idea of continually doesn't mean these guys fall down, get up, fall down, get up, fall down, get up, fall down, get up. up. That's not the point. The point is is that there is an ongoing adoration around the throne. There is a never-ceasing worship that goes on. Now, what form that takes, I don't know. But the idea of never ceasing is not to be taken as repetitive, never-ending. It's to be taken as unending, meaning that it doesn't cease throughout all eternity. Okay? And whether you want to see that as four beings that do nothing but say this, and then 24 elders falling down, getting back up, falling down, getting back up. That's okay. I don't really care how you you view it. My view is that this is a pictorial image that there is never a time in in the heavenlies around the throne room of God where he is not adored and worshiped. That's the picture. Now, one guy said that every time... The, the the four beings say holy, 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 the, the elders fall down and worship, but that every time they raise up and look at God, they see something new about Him and they fall right back down. And you will never run out of new facets to see of an eternal God. So, yeah, Rick. When you add to that the fact that
1: all of those that have died in faith have gone on to be with the Lord. And Hebrews speaks of the this, the spirits of men made perfect that, that those that have died are now in the presence of God, conscious, Yeah, not resurrected bodies, but conscious in their the soul life is living mm-hmm. in the presence of God. So those that have died and gone on to the Lord are in that.
0: Yeah, they are. As well. And they also cry out, as we will read later on in chat Revelation, they cry out for vindication. There are four, if I'm not mistaken, there are four places in Scripture where during the outpouring of God's wrath, there's an interlude where the saints cry out. Here's one of them. 24 elders offer up the prayers of the saints. On the sixth, I, th- I think it's the sixth seal, or it's one of the trumpets you have the, 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 the martyrs that have been slain are under the altar, whatever that means. We'll get to that later. Under the altar and they cry out, when, Lord, how long? And then there's the one part where the mighty angel comes and he has the incense of the saints and he throws the fire from the altar into the earth. So there's this idea of the saints, prayer going up for vindication and God dealing in accordance to that prayer in judgment on the earth. And every one of the times where there's the incense of the praise of God's people going up, God acts in judgment. I'm going to encourage you guys, that's why prayer is important. Because we see it throughout Revelation that the prayer of the saints moves the heart of God to act. What does it say in Exodus? And the Lord heard their cries, and he moved. And throughout Revelation we see that very thing. And the Lord heard their cries, and he vindicated the prayers of the saints here are ascending before the throne at all times, okay? Um, all right. There's much to go to this. I'll conclude here because i got to stop. So let me conclude this. This symbolic vision shows the reality of how God chooses to dip- display His, the glory of His countenance. It is important to remember that there is a specific divine purpose in the Godhead giving the vision to John. And I said this earlier, God is not just granting a gratuitous glimpse into the throne of heaven to satisfy the curious or to give a tour. Since God intends to establish His absolute sovereignty, authority, and power over all of creation in the minds of the church, so as to encourage and assure them, and assure them, the symbolism of the throne, the precious stones, the rainbow, the glassy sea, the four living creatures, and the twenty-four elders must be in t- understood in that context. I hope I, I've iterated or uh, conveyed that well. Uh, this is essential to keep in mind that these individual components of John's vision are indeed are intended to d- depict spiritual realities and do not necessarily rea- reflect some kind of physicality that's going on, all right? So the throne, again, I keep going back to this, represents sovereign rule, authority to rule, and power. The throne represents the attributes of God. Okay? Um. So I've already covered that. I'll close with this. The ultimate purpose of all of creation is to do what? Glorify God. So as we gather together, this is really important, guys. As we gather together as a church, we are represented in heaven, and I don't know how that actually is. I don't know by what means that is but there is a eternal rep- or, or there is a representation it's not eternal because this is a created image there is a representation around the throne of us in our fullness as God understands us in the spiritual that that fall down before the lord and say holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. And they join with the seraphim or the cherubim or whatever you want to call those other beings and all of creation worship, worships God. There is in heaven right now, in the created heavens where God dwells in the spiritual realm, a worship service that is going on right now. And we have the privilege of joining in to that. That is our, listen to the word, privilege. We don't worship because we need to fill some time on a Sunday morning. Okay? It's not a prelude to something else. It doesn't warm us up so that we can receive the Word. It is the ultimate act that all of creation has been made for. You were made to worship a sovereign, eternal, immutable, ineffable God. And so when you're worshiping this morning as the worship team leads, do not look at your clocks and watches and say, oh my gosh, I, I don't like this song or whatever. Join in with your whole heart and know that you are joining myriads and thousands upon thousands and millions of beings and created uh, created things, that, angels that surround the throne of God and are doing that very thing right now. And it is your unbelievable privilege to step into that if if I may okay yes all the time (laughs) or only on Sundays depending on your ecclesiology (laughs) yeah so we take shifts (laughs) this is a shift thing we're coming up in about 30 minutes so Guys, be on your your game, all right? (laughs) Okay. Father, we're grateful for the privileges that you've afforded us. May we lay hold on the eternality and the significance of what it is that we are a part of. We are not an insignificant group of people that meet in a weird building somewhere in Rancho that nobody knows about because we are represented before the throne room of God, and God knows who we are. So we join this morning with that myriad upon myriad and thousands upon thousands of heavenly beings. And we say this morning together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. Amen.